You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hey, this is Sonal Rupani standing in for Georgia Tolley on the agenda. And on the show today, we discuss labor disputes. That's as a new process is coming into play January 1st of 2024. Legal manager at Denton's Middle East, Ali Al-Assad, joined us to answer some questions about what that means and also what you can do, what sorts of rights you have if you haven't been paid your full dues. We also asked the question, would you move to Russell Kema? That's as it seems there's a new development launched every day. A lot of big residential projects at high price tags, and they're actually getting sold out instantly. We caught up with a realtor and also long-term resident of Russell Kama to find out what it's really like there. And finally, we caught up with the Shakat family. Now, a lot of people dream about setting off on van life, basically kitting out a van and traveling the world. But what's it like when you really do it? They took their whole family along for the ride, and they told us, sports and all, what happened. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. You are tuned into The Agenda with myself, Sonal Rupani. Zina Zalame is alongside me in the studio as well. And today on the show, we're going to open up with a discussion on labor disputes. Is this something that you have faced during your career here in the UAE? Whether that comes to issues of non-payment or, or other issues that you may face, you can get your questions in on 4001. You can always reach us on 04871 because we have an expert in the studio joining us to discuss this topic. Ali Al-Assad, he is a legal manager at Denton's Middle East, and he's joined us in studio today. Thanks so much for coming in, Ali. Thank you for having me. And Ali, let's start by discussing an important change in labor law concerning disputes that's starting from the 1st of January. Of course, it was announced sometime back, but, you know, this change is coming up relatively shortly in terms of when it's going to be applied. Um, Employees in the private sector in particular are going to be able to resolve their disputes faster. At least that's the intent behind this change. It was a new legislation announced by the Ministry of Human Resources and Emeritization. Tell us a little bit more, Ali, before we even get started into the change, about the current process. When it comes to labor disputes and addressing those, how long can that take and, and what is the kind of process people currently have to go to? Uh, basically, the situation currently is as follows. In the event there is a dispute that arises between the employer and employee, either party who would like to escalate the matter to the court, before going to court, they must pass through the Ministry of uh, Labor or Ministry of Human Resources and Matterization, file a complaint. Once the complaint is filed, the ministry will invite both parties to try to uh, make a settlement or to make an arbitral settlement for the matter. If the parties reach a settlement, they can document it. However, this settlement by itself usually is not enforceable. So if one party decides to step back, basically they will be able to do so. The other option is if the parties are unable to reach a settlement, the party who started the matter can request a transfer to the court. The ministry will issue a letter transferring the matter to the court. From there, the claimant being the employee or the employer will have to file their claim pay the filing fees whenever it's applicable. The court will serve the other party. Hearing will be scheduled, attend hearing, make submissions, issue a judgment, and so so. Okay. So this process can be lengthy sometime. The process usually at the ministry it's, doesn't exceed like one week. And by our experience from the time you file until you have the transfer letter, unless there is something complicated and the parties need more time to settle or to negotiate, yeah, it happened. But in general, it's quite f- fast. Once we reach the court, here, the court, usually they tend to schedule the hearing as early as possible. However, their workload sometimes force them to 
push it for more time. Sometimes you read in the law that a hearing needs to be scheduled within three days. Often doesn't happen. It takes longer. Right. And if the party attend the, f- the first hearing, for example, let's say I'm the employee, I file against the company, the company will attend the first hearing as an extension to appoint a lawyer. Okay. So this will be postponed by one week or two weeks. Two weeks, the lawyer will attend. He may ask for an extension to review the file. Sometimes the judge will give it, sometimes not, depending on the complexity of the case. So for now, if the case is 1 million dirham or 1,000 dirham, the process is the same. Right. Starting January, it will be different. If we are talking about something less than 50,000, we don't have to go to court as a first step. We have to go to the ministry, file the complaint and file the dispute there. And the ministry should uh, issue a decision. And unlike the previous decisions or the previous settlements, these documents will be enforceable. So the ministry will put a stamp on this decision issued by them. And usually once you have this stamp, it's equivalent to the stamp usually placed by the court. And therefore, if I am the one who filed the claim and the court give me, the ministry give me the decision with the stamp, it means I can take this document to the court. For example, if the judgment gave me X amount of dirham, I can take it to the court and ask the court to seize the bank account of the employer and take the money out of it. And so this, it can be enforced quite quickly if the system will work the way how it's intended to be. Right. Well, I think that's key as well, because it seems the suggestion is just to make this process more efficient when you have sort of perhaps a large number of disputes coming in under a certain value that it would just take one person or, you know, whoever is reviewing that to make a single decision. You imagine the amount of time that would take versus what you've described as a week, sometimes mm-hmm. weeks if it is actually making its way to court. Any th- any thoughts or any information in the community about why why this change has been made? Uh, our understanding is the following: that first of all, this will help the court to reduce the workload they have, because sometimes, like the judges, they end up with cases, for example, for five thousand dirham, six thousand dirham, and at the same time, they have cases for much bigger amounts. Is it worth it to invest the judge's time in a case that can be solved quite quickly instead of uh, bombarding the system by? a huge number of cases that can be settled very quickly, but just they have to take longer time because then you have to go through the process. So that's one of the uh, reasons behind it, I believe. And maybe doing that will help people to settle or to uh, finalize their litigation process faster than if we go to court. I believe that's the intention, but we need to see how the practice will develop. Because also knowing how the system functions, we believe that now, once we go to this new system, how would the ministry serve the parties if the party is not available? Usually, you need judge permission to publish in the newspaper, to send a bailiff, to inquire with the authorities about the address of a party. How would that function with the, with the ministry? We need to see. Right. And is there a chance to appeal if people are unhappy? Like you said, it's a final decision this time mm-hmm. around. You don't have necessarily a say in that mediation to negotiate with the mm-hmm. other party. All of a sudden, you're getting a judgment that's handed down by a third party. Will people be able to appeal if they're not happy? Yeah. Also, the wording of the regulations uh, of the new law says like final judgment. Yeah, but this final judgment in terms of it can be enforced, but this doesn't mean it cannot be appealed. So the party who's unhappy with the judgment, with the decision, or like if sometimes even both parties are not happy, they can proceed to the court and file an appeal. But here they need to be careful. In normal cases, like the period of appeal is 30 days from the day of issuing the judgment. Here it's reduced to 15 days. And the court of appeal is supposed to issue their decision within 15 days. The first 15 days is binding. So if the party go and file the appeal on day 16, the appeal will be dismissed. It's over for them. The second period of 15 days within which the court need to issue the judgment, this is usually, as we see in practice, more regulatory, which means the court may take longer than 15 days to issue the judgment. Mm. But the first 15 days is binding. 
if the party missed these 15 days, it's over for them. What are some of the most common, in your experience here as, as a lawyer, what are some of the most common issues you see people filing these labor disputes for? And you mentioned that it can be filed either by the employee or the employer. So on both sides, what are some of the most common e- examples that we see? The most example we see from the side, if we start with the employee side, it used to be compensation for dismissal. This has resulted from the old law and the arbitrary dismissal. Now the new law has much more, uh, narrowed so much the chances for an employee to get compensation, but we still see these claims. Majority of them are being dismissed, but these are, we still see them in practice. We see a lot of issues about bonuses and commissions. So this is also something we see quite often. Some disputes about end of service. However, with the change of the law, I believe the chances for dispute for end of service will be declining. From the side of the employer, majority like majority of the disputes or claims we see are related to non-compete, breach of confidentiality, uh, and sometimes like uh, an employee, for example, like not abiding by the notice period, or for example, there is a clawback from the employee because a lot of companies have the practice of advancing, for example, the accommodation allowance or the school allowance for the employee from the beginning of the year. Six months down the road, the employee resigns. He already got paid for this amount and they have to claw it back. If the employee doesn't pay it, they have to go to court. But uh, to be honest, majority of the cases we've seen are mm-hmm. from the employee against the employer rather than the other way around. I would imagine that. And one of the common issues you also hear is either non-payment or severe delay mm-hmm. in payment. Is there a certain minimum amount it has to be before you can file a labor dispute over something like that? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, well, this amount is relatively speaking, even though it means a lot to me, is maybe in the big scheme of things, not something I would ever ever conceive of, you know, going through a legal process for. Is it worth it to go through a legal dispute process, especially now that it's becoming more streamlined, even if the amount isn't sort of massive? Yeah. Uh, Here we need to consider a couple of elements that will contribute to this picture. First of all, when the employee can claim the salary, if your salary is due on the 30th, on the 30th, they don't pay you, legally speaking, you have the right to claim claim. There is nothing in the law that says you are not allowed. Whether it's worth it to do it, I would not advise because by the time you file your, you go to the ministry, you file your case and so on, until you reach the court, maybe at that time you will get paid. So parties need to be reasonable. If there is a minor delay, don't re- rush and escalate the matter. Second of all, it's not common in the UAE for employees to sue their employers where they are still employed. Mm. Because, you know, like if you file a case against your employer, okay, you may get a judgment, but what's going to happen down the road? Exactly. Uh, most likely, the employment may continue for some time, but it's not going to last for long. Also, on top of that, there is a service that's available only for mainland companies, not for the free zone so far, which is filing the complaint, anonymous complaint with the ministry. So if an employee doesn't receive his salary, he can go to the ministry and file a complaint without, and the ministry will, will protect his confidentiality in terms of disclosing the name of the employee, and they will speak with the company. So that would be a situation where you could complain without losing your job? Basically. basically, basically yes. If you are talking about a company that have hundreds of employees and there is many people who are not paid, yes, the company is not going to be able to identify who's the one who filed the complaint. Mm-hmm. But if you are talking about a company that have four people and only one of them was not paid and he go and complain, yeah. <laughs> it's not a lot of science. They will know yeah. who's that. Yeah. So that's something we always recommend for individuals. Before you rush in, although you have the right to go and file the complaint from, uh, from day one, that it doesn't hurt if you wait a couple of days, try to settle stuff um, amicably because you can be surprised sometimes how how often stuff can be resolved if you are talking about two reasonable parties without stating the matter to court. However, sometimes we come across people who have agendas. So not our agenda, like agendas to do something. <laughs> not so, agenda the show, yeah. but yeah. Your agenda to do something. Agendas, right? And sometimes you end up with just people who are just like very angry or like 
emotion uh, reacting on an emotional basis. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've seen people sometimes they come and tell you, we prefer to pay the lawyer one million dirham, but we're not going to pay this employee ten dirham. There is these approaches sometimes. That whole, when it yeah. becomes a matter of principle for people. Matter of principle, is, yeah. sometimes they want to set like a precedent. Sometimes there is like individual vendetta between people. Sometimes right. it happens. So we see all of that. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it's all emotive. And it's yeah. also interesting, of course, when we get into it. I've had a lot of questions that have come in as well for our expert in studio with us, Ali Al-Assad. He is legal manager at Denton's Middle East. And we've been talking about labor law disputes. The reason for that is because there's going to be a bit of a new process coming into play from the start of the new year. That's for cases with claims under 50,000 dirhams. But it does kind of open up the field for a broader discussion on labor disputes when they're worth it, what cases, in what cases, um, you know, they apply and how they apply. So I want to get actually to a question that's come in from Andy. What about existing labor disputes? Uh, Will the new law be applied on those as well? Yeah, usually the way whenever these regulations or these laws are issued, it usually address the point saying like the old cases will continue to run normally or whether they will be transferred. Right. This law is silent about this point, but I believe for the ongoing cases, they're not going to take them back to the ministry. They will continue as they are, but we are yet to see whether the practice will show different. Okay, so it's kind of a wait and see what the ministry yep. decides to do on that particular one. Um, what about disputes that are over 50,000? I assume that then the process is as usual, as you described to us earlier, where there's a mediation attempt and then it potentially goes to court. Yeah, for these uh, these uh, type of cases, yeah, the uh, business as usual, there is no change, the old system will apply. And a really common question that we get, and this one's coming from Nez, my former boss still owes me money from two years ago. I didn't file a case then because I had to get another job and sort out some visa issues. Can I file a case now? I've kept old emails and all the documents needed um, saying that he couldn't give me my full end of service pay. Yeah. In terms of law, yes, she can file the claim. The court will entertain it, but she needs to be careful about one point. There's the concept of time bar. And therefore, any employment right you would like to claim, you have to claim it maximum within one year mm. from the time you were supposed to pay, be paid. For example, end of service, you have one year from your last day of employment or one year plus 14 days because there is a da- there is a grace period for 14 days to pay. So from the 14 days, we count one year. If we pass that time, she can still file the claim. But if the employer will show up at the court and submit the defense saying claim time board, she's not going to be able to recover the money. And what if the employer doesn't show up to... If the employer protest does, the time bar. If the employer, let's say if he show up and he doesn't uh, contest the time bar, he doesn't raise the time bar, the judge will proceed with the matter, will issue a judgment, and she will be able to get the money. Okay. But if the employer, and the employer have to raise it very early in the stage. For example, he cannot wait, for example, for the appeal to go and raise it. Right. So he have to st- raise this point before any other defense. If he raise it, she will lose the case. If he doesn't raise it, then she can proceed. When it comes to these labor disputes, if somebody is deciding, is hearing this p- potentially, and hearing mm. from you, Ali, and realizing they actually have the right to file a sort of labor dispute case because of uh, perhaps an end of service they weren't paid, what is the process? As we go in and it's not a mediation anymore, it seems that the burden of proof is going to be obviously on the person anyways who is applying for the case. What sort of documents and evidence should they keep in mind to build the strongest case possible? Yeah, the burden of proof when it comes to employment matters is quite complicated, a little bit complicated, to be honest. If an employee is claiming end of service, the employee will have to prove to the court their starting employment date, their last day of employment and their last salary. That's if I talk about end of service. If we are talking about somebody who want to claim that their salary was not paid, the burden of proof is not going to be on the employee. All what the employee has to do is go to the court or to the ministry and say, I was not paid my salary for X, Y, Z months. And at that time, the burden is on the employer to prove that he paid. So the employee for the salaries, he just have to claim 
and the employer have to prove that he paid. If the employer failed to prove that he paid, basically the court will uh, will award the judgment to the employee giving them the salary, the claim salaries. Right. So the burden of proof it depends on what type of claim. End of service on the employee, annual leave on the employer, salary on the employer, illegal termination on the employee, discrimination on the employee. Well, let's talk about discrimination. That's actually something we talked about a bit earlier, because right now we're talking about financial cases. But when mm-hmm. it comes to a discrimination case, is this something that you see? Are these cases actually filed here? Like the concept of discrimination was brought into uh, the old labor law in 2020, and mm-hmm. later it was more developed in the new labor law, the one issued in 2021. However, we are yet to see how it will work in practice. We've seen a lot of employees or companies uh, raising concerns or questions or even seeking advice about discrimination, but I am yet to see one actual case about it. And the main reason there, I believe, is that the labor law says that that discrimination is not allowed, and the labor law specifies that there is a fine of ranging between 5,000 to 1 million dirham for violating the law. Okay, this is a fine if the company violates, but what does the employee get out of it? Right. There is no standard compensation. And therefore, if the employee under the general rules want to seek compensation, he needs to prove the damage. And the damage incurred here, proving it might not be very simple or might be even costly for the employee. And that's why a lot of employees, I think, they don't file about it so far. That's interesting. So technically, the discrimination law is in place to protect people, but is it worthwhile? I mean, as we talked earlier about these labor disputes, there's the legal sense of things, but then there's also the practicality of it. Is, it. is it worth doing it? So that's a really interesting point to hear about. Now, we actually have a caller on the line for you. Uh, I believe it is Candy joining us on the line. How's it going, Candy? Hi, I'm good, thank you. I understand you have a question for Ali, who's our expert today. Yes, I do, and it's perfect timing, so I'm very, very happy. Um, so my question is, I've just started a new job. Now, unfortunately, last year I had cancer. And that means that the medical insurance premium is considerably higher. They have stated that they are waiting for the final quote, but that since it would be significantly higher than what they're paying for any other employee, they may ask me to pay the difference. So my question is, is that legal? Because it's under my understanding that that would actually constitute discrimination and that it's the employer's duty to provide medical insurance. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the story there? I assume you are working in Dubai or in a different emirate? Yes. In Dubai. Dubai, okay. Dubai in Dubai, the obligation to provide medical insurance fall on the employer and the employer is not allowed to pass the cost of the insurance to the employee. Being fully or partially, they are not allowed to pass the cost to you. So therefore, they have to provide you the medical insurance. You should not be paying any part of that. But in terms of discrimination, I believe the situation you are under doesn't qualify as discrimination. So discrimination is not a point okay. we need to consider, but it is your right to get medical insurance from the employer and they have to pay for it. Can I, can I jump in here on Candy's behalf and just ask a follow-up question? So if Candy is in the right and is not having any sort of responsibility to pay the insurance, this new employer should be paying it, but saying that they won't, what can she actually do about it? Because again, it's a new employment situation. It's a little bit awkward. I think it's probably, I'm assuming there, Candy, that it's a little bit awkward um, yeah. to, to kind of manage it direct, <laughs> with them directly. So how can you address this? a situation like that if they're saying no it's too high of an insurance premium and perhaps that's the reason that they may not not decide to go ahead with employment or or they just refuse to do it if they decide not to go ahead with the employment i believe there is little you can do about it but in the event they proceed with the employment but for example they give you like uh, they don't give you the medical the medical insurance coverage in this situation they can be exposed to a fine by for failing to provide you the medical insurance or if for example you pay for it this can attract a fine on them 
And on top of that, if there is any coverage that you are not getting, they will be liable for your medical bills for that. So if the company decides to okay. employ you without providing the medical insurance, which is a mistake we see a lot of companies doing when they hire somebody who's not under their visa. They assume that they have medical insurance and they don't provide it, which is incorrect. In this situation, the employer will be liable for the medical bills. Thanks so, okay. mu- thanks so much for getting in touch right. with that question and, and best of luck with that, that difficult you. situation. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the info. Thanks. Welcome. It's a really interesting topic, that actually, health insurance and, again, premiums. It's obviously difficult for employ- employers, perhaps, if especially if it's a smaller company and there's a much larger cost mm-hmm. that they have to absorb. But it's it's obviously important for all employees to know the rights when it comes to these issues. It's um, been so interesting to hear your questions for Ali. And Ali, thank you so much for, for being here and answering some of those. My pleasure. Thank you. It's five minutes past 11 on your Wednesday morning. You're tuned into The Agenda with myself, Sonal, with Zena alongside me as well. And Zena, we haven't had a chance to have much of a chat today just no, yet. But busy show. We are talking about alternative living, I think it's fair to say, over the course of the next hour or so. Maybe it's not fair to call it alternative living, but I think for a lot of Dubai residents still, Abu Dhabi residents, even Sharjah residents, the idea of living in Russell Hama seems... Like a, a bit a bit quiet, perhaps, still a bit far out from a lot of the activity that we yeah. see. When I think of Russell Kaima, I think staycation. I think of the suburbs. Um, it's our favorite staycation destination. And I sometimes talk to the locals there, the residents, yeah. you know, on the golf course. And they all say... You know, they all talk about how quiet the Emirate is, but also there's a strong sense of community. They know everybody else. So I don't mind trying out living in Russell Kaima. Well, and that's the thing. Things really seem to have been changing lately. As, as you mentioned, a lot of people still think of it as a place to go to a nice hotel for the night. But the Emirate has, of course, has been a big tourist magnet. A lot of attractions at Jebel Jace. It's going to have 12 new hotels by the end of 2024, of course. You can't avoid mentioning the, the hospitality and gaming mega project Win Al Marjan Island that's being built to the tune of 3.9 billion US dollars. Of course, you have a big golfing community with the Alhamra Golf Club, but there also seems to be a real focus on residential projects. So just recently, Rack Hospitality, Hospitality Holding unveiled the Ritz Carlton residences in Al Wadi Desert. Those are for three, four, and five bedroom villas. Marjan has announced a Hilton-backed project, which consists of a hotel, but also branded residences. If we go back just a couple of months, Abu Dhabi's Aldar Properties has taken a strong interest as well. They announced a project with Nikki Beach to have three branded residential buildings at Al Marjan Island. It seems every day you wake up and there's a new Russell Hama project. And the prices going at a little bit higher than you tend to think. The Northern Emirates, I think a lot of people historically think or have the perception of lower price points typically. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the case as we look at these new high-end projects. So we wanted to discuss it a little bit more. And to join us in that conversation, we have friend of Dubai Eye, Jeff Rhodes, who's also the founder and managing consultant of Rhodes Precious Metals Consultancy. So good to see you after ages, Jeff. Yeah, great to see you as well, Sana and uh, Zena. Really, it's, when was the last time we met? Ten years ago? You were a baby. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I would say more recent. Than <laughs> Definitely not ten years ago. But, yeah, no. but it has been a while, and it it's has. so nice to have you in the studio with us. And the reason, of course, you, we have you here is because you have been committed to living in Rack for a long time. When we were first talking about this feature, and Zena thought, let's speak to somebody. You were the first person that came to mind. Because as early as I first met you, 
you know, you've been flying the flag for Russell Kama as a wonderful place to live. So tell us the story a bit about how long you've been living there and why you decided to live there, even though you do, as you are now in Dubai, have to commute in sometimes for, for a bit of a work. Yeah, look, um, it goes, it's a long story, but going back to 2006, I'd come to Dubai in 1996 to set up a bank called Standard Bank London, part of the Standard Bank of South Africa group, to focus on gold and trade finance. And that was a spectacular success. And, and Standard Bank today is probably number three bullion bank in the world. And so I was part of the, the, the group that set up the operations in Dubai. And, and if you remember, freehold started to be talked about in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it coincided with myself and a group of standard bankers who, who felt that perhaps we should go our own way and, and be a bit entrepreneurial. And so I set up a company in Dubai called INTL uh, Precious Metals in, in the DMCC as part of a wider, wider group. But at that point, it was me earning the least amount of money I'd earned for 20 years, but I had an equity stake in the company and decided I didn't want to pay any rent. I wanted to buy. So I was playing golf at the Emirates one Saturday Mm -hmm. and watched the the buildings going up just along uh, the Faldo. I thought, you know, I'd like to live there. So I literally came off the 18th went straight to the sales office and put some money down on an apartment in Lynx East. I was telling a friend about this on the following Monday, a client of mine, who said, why don't you go and look at Russell Kamer, 2006? And he said, I'll take you. I said, where is it? He said, I'll take you there. And he did. And we went to Alhamra Village, which was just about started to be built. And I uh, said, why don't you take a place here? So I went into this building. It was it was just, you know, rock. Yeah. You know, concrete. And I went to the top, and the, the top floor is seven, but they had a fairly small balcony. The, the floor that had the biggest terrace was the sixth floor. So literally, I went to the sales office on that day and put money down on an apartment. So I put, within three days, put money down on... Two apartments, one in Rack, one in, uh, our, um, at the Emirates, and both were built. And both were delivered between 2009 2010. And I've been a kind of resident of Russell Kamer since 2010. But in 2013 14, I felt I had had enough. I was 63, time mm. to retire. Yeah. And, you know, spend, I didn't want to leave the UAE. So I set up a company in the DMCC so that I could stay. That company just exploded with with business. And so um, I look back and think, you know, I've never worked so hard in the last 10 years as I do now, but I now have such a great balance. Largely, I'm in Rack, beautiful, but I come here to see clients and see visiting clients and so on. So I spend my time between Rack and, and Dubai what I like about Rack is the peace and quiet, really. And listening at night, windows open this time of year, yeah. listening to the ocean, seriously, 
There's nothing like it. Is it too pe- peaceful and too quiet, though? Because I think a lot of people still see Rack as a bit of a sleepy town. Uh, and, you know, I think to each their own, I quite like slow living. So I'm, it's intriguing to me, and I'm definitely interested in it. But do you find there's enough going on for when you are in the mood for a little bit more stimulation? If I were there seven, you know, 365 days a year, you're quite right. But having a mix of, of largely Rack but also in Dubai, and certainly two, two days, two, three days a week in Dubai, it just breaks it up. And, and you know, Rack is like Dubai was when I first came here in 1996. Mm. It's very similar. Dubai, yeah. you know, you girls are, are too young to really remember, but it was really sleepy. Yep. You know, I set up my first office for Standard Bank was in Bank Street, Khalid bin al-Walid Street, right? It was one of the only buildings on that street. The other one, was, I think Standard Chartered was there and, and one of the other banks. But Dubai was like that, and it's not that long ago. So now, will Rack be like it? I don't think so, because the rulers, uh, the government of Russell Kamer, I think really has uh, the ecosystem in, in, in full view. Really, that is important. Like, so where I live on, on the beach in Alhambra Village, I literally am overlooking a public beach. Now, no way is that going to be built on, because it's public. You see public every weekend, Sonal, on, on a Friday night, Saturday night, so many people camping on the beach. It's free. Wow. And they t- they're very eco-friendly. They take their, you know, rubbish away and so on. But where, where in Dubai can you see that? You can't. In Russell Kim, you can. That's one of the things I wanted to ask, Jeff. So I'm a mother of two. Uh, we are a family of four. If we ever move to Russell Kaima, what are the things that we can do? Some family activities. Uh, you know, golfing is big there. I know adventure sports. But if I'm not a domestic tourist and I'm actually living there, what, what are the things we can do? Well, yeah, if you, I'm assuming you do like the beach. So obviously you can spend time at the beach. Yeah. But also, and there are there is stuff for, for kids to do. I mean, the schooling's excellent. Yeah, oh. really, some very very good schools there. Um, you're not you just walking around the village. If you you see so many families walking around the village, okay, you can walk. Really, in Dubai, you can't walk. Really, if you have to even crossing this the road here, in, in Alhamra village. You see, looking at Alhamra village and Marjan Island, Marjan Island really is tourist. It really is focused on tourists. Mm. Alhamra village is really focused on residential and the communities. So communities are really, if you want a, a community life, a nice family life where you can just spend time together, you've got yeah, every, every apartment complex, every uh, villas, complex, and so on. There's swimming pools. So if you like the outdoor life, walking around with your family at night, it's fine. You do need to inject a bit of life every so often by coming to Dubai. But of course, you're going to have a lot of life, more life than actually people realize in three or four years' time. Jeff, actually, on the topic of community, you've been part of the community there for yeah. more than 10 years, as you've said. How does everybody, how is everybody reacting to this surge of development activity that we're seeing? Is Honestly, it looked at fondly or are people a little bit hesitant? I remember when Dubai was growing very fast. I have been around that long here as well. That, you know, there were people thinking, oh, it's really getting big a little bit. You know, people need to be ready for that. You really want the honest answer yeah, or, or the... Um, Always the honest okay. answer. I think people are rubbing their hands together. 
because yeah. because look, I was telling you a story off air that I in nine, 2006 I bought an apartment in Dubai on the Greens mm-hmm. and an apartment in Alhambra Village. One doubled by 2014. One doubled, one halved. Right. You can guess which doubled. So it was here in Dubai. And, of course, you know, at the time in 12, 13, there was this talk about uh, the America's Cup being based and raced in Russell Kamer, right? It never happened because the Americans took 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 us to court. Anyway, and, of course, we lost. It was New York law. So, so at that point... A lot of people had invested into RACT and they, they were long and wrong. Okay, so prices halved. And a lot of people sold at the lows, whereas I didn't have to sell. I lived there. I mean, I just, it didn't really matter what it cost. So now I would say the price of my apartment having been halved is probably doubled. So a lot of people rubbing their hands together. Um, and you, they won't have very soon, if you want life as well as the peace, you won't have to come to Dubai very soon. The next three or four years be plenty to do. Certainly on Marjan Island, which is, I guess, is, is a bit the equivalent of a kind of Las Vegas. I mean, we're calling it Ras Vegas. Is that right? <laughs> Ras Vegas. Vegas. I love that. Okay, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So Ras Vegas. So that's going to be your tourist area. Yeah. And Alhambra is still going to be your residential you know, as we talk about the investments and the money to be made in Russell Kama, that's what we're turning our attention to next. So, Jeff, you're going to stay with us okay. in studio. We're going to have a realtor who's based in Russell Kama joining us as well on Microsoft Teams. And we're going to find out a little bit more about the opportunities to invest in Russell Kama, why people are buying there, about the prices that we're seeing as well that are a little bit surprising and shocking to some. So stay with us on okay. the agenda. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. You are listening to The Agenda, where we are discussing how you can live your best life in Russell Hamer. We've got Jeff Rhodes in studio with us. He's a friend of Dubai Eye, and he's been telling us about his life in the Emirate, living there for more than 10 years. Got us thinking about house prices and rents because traditionally it was seen as a place that was way more affordable than the properties here in Dubai. But with growing population, is that changing also with the fact that it seems every new day there's a new property launch as well? Um, we've seen in the past few days Rack Hospitality Holding unveiling the Ritz-Carlton residences in Alwadi Desert, three, four and five bedroom villas. Marjan has announced a Hilton back project consisting of a hotel and branded residence. We saw a few months ago Nikki Beach and Aldarkal collaborating on three residential properties in Almarja Island as well. That project sold out in just two days. Now, there has been so much talk of developments happening over in Russell Kama that in addition to having Jeff in the studio with us, we wanted to also get the voice of a realtor, someone based in Russell Kama who's seen it all firsthand. And also to ask the question, have we missed the property boat in Russell Kama or is there still time to get in on it? Joining us now is Paula Svensson. She is Managing Director of Probima Center. Paula, good morning. Good morning. So thank you so much, Paula, for joining us on the show. How are you doing? I'm all good. Thank you so much for having me here. Now, tell us a little bit about how the property market has changed in Rack, especially in terms of so many of the off-plan properties that we've seen launched recently. Yes, uh, it is uh, changes every day. I've been living here since uh, 14 years, and of course, uh, uh, the last uh, one and a half year, uh, there is new development coming up uh, 
every day the ice uh, is on Rasakaima from all over the world. You can see uh, a new type of investors coming in from abroad who are having a big property portfolio in different cities and they are now uh, keeping their eyes on Rasakaima. And what is driving this surge of activity? Do we know, especially in terms of demographics, um, you know, is this being seen as investment properties for short-term holiday rentals and lets? Is it for people looking to live there themselves? Uh, who are some of the key property buyers in the market? Yeah, it's a mix. I would say it's a mix. Uh, we have, of course, a lot of people living in Dubai, living in Abu Dhabi, who are investing here in a let's say, a holiday home or a place that uh, they can do sometime themselves, rent it out uh, as an investment. They believe in the market. So there is, uh, uh, even if prices have gone up here, there is still um, high potential on the market for growth and uh, um, property uh, prices to go up in the in near future. And uh, so it's a mix of people. It's the people who are already in the Emirates uh, who like to have a place here. It's very relaxing. We are just by the sea, by the beaches. Uh, we have a fantastic nature around. It's it's beautiful. Uh, then, of course, you also have the investors coming from abroad, uh, looking to uh, to buy, to rent out. Uh, you can also see quite a lot of people, which I think have left the UAE uh, over the years, uh, who miss it over here. It's a safe and nice place, and uh, they are coming back. And Rasakama is uh, still an affordable place. Uh, it's a very familiar place. Uh, it's a good place to uh, to retire. It's a little bit more relaxed. And still, you only have uh, a Dubai around the corner if you want to uh, go there to enjoy uh, what they have to offer, which we don't have here as of now. And Jeff, let me ask you this, because we're hearing a lot about people using this as a holiday home, as a second home. But of course, you've made it your primary home, aside from the local population, of course, who are based there. Of the community and of, of the friends that you have there, who are the people that are choosing to make it their permanent home? Yeah, well, first of all, um, I, I'm on both sides of the camp uh, of, of the story because I did flip between Dubai and Russell Kamer for four or five years mm. before I actually moved there in 2014 for good. Um, I would say it certainly people of a certain age, certain my age, uh, would find it attractive to live on a permanent basis. But more and more at the other end of the spectrum, families with or couples with young families who want to bring their children up in a, in a safe environment where, as we were talking about off air, you can go walking around the village every night, in, certainly in Alhambra. I would say Marjan Island is really a tourist uh, attraction, um, but our Alhambra village is much more for communities, residential. And, mm. um, you know, it's such a safe and clean environment. Honestly, you can listen, lay in bed and at night listening to the ocean and, and it, you feel healthier. Yeah. And so bringing your, a young family up is a very attractive thing to do. So it combines both, both ends of the spectrum, really. And Paula, let's talk prices, because I think that's been a little bit of a surprise. When we talk about some of these new luxury launches that are happening recently, mm. you're also looking at prices that people consider Dubai prices. Is that, is yes. that surprising to you? Or you and they're also selling out. Of course, it is a little bit surprising because uh, we are used to something different. We still have uh, the secondary market where prices uh, in comparison to the new development are still 
I would say very attractive. You can uh, get a smaller place like a studio. You can still uh, buy a studio for around 350,000. Uh, and of course, then up depending on uh, what size of property you are buying. Um, on the new development, they have very attractive uh, payment plans, of course. And uh, if you see uh, the expansion of the area, what uh, will happen here and uh, how it will grow, uh, all the facilities in those new places. Um, I still think it is uh, obviously very attractive for people because it sells out uh, quickly. I think it's the location of the area. We are just by the beach. Uh, it's not easy to get this uh, beachfront property for the prices that they are launching um, in Dubai either. Paula, thank you so much for offering those insights. Really appreciate you joining us on the show. Thank you. And Jeff, likewise, it's been so great to see you in studio, learn a little bit about how much you love living in Russell Cave. I'm sure you've inspired some people <laughs> listening to actually check it out as well. So thanks it's for coming in. It's been a pleasure. In. Thank you very much. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda with myself, Sonal Rupani. I've got Zina Zalamea alongside me. And it's almost like Zina picked this next interview for me. I am exactly the type of person that would spend all of my time looking at photos of van life and just glorifying it, romanticizing it. Zina, you found a family right here in the UAE who has set out, not in a van perhaps, but in a bus customized it, made it a mobile home, and have actually managed to travel, you know, large parts of Asia in particular. Exactly. First of all, van life totally suits you. <laughs> I can picture you driving your little van with your husband and traveling the world. But yes, so we found a family. They've been on before. Actually, they went on the show before they traveled when they had just finished, you know, um, uh, Preparing the bus? Preparing the bus, exactly, and uh, making sure that it turned into a nice mobile home before they went off on their journey, and now they're back. So I'm really curious to know, was it worth it? What was their journey like? Would they recommend it? Do you dream of going off-grid? Always. Yeah? Fantasize about it? Where where do you go in your mind when you think about it? Southeast Asia, because I'm from there, and I haven't been to many countries around that region. So, And I think it'll be really fun. Now, let's invite them into the conversation now, because in studio with us, well, in in the Dubai Eye studios, we have the Shakat family, Nina, Kai, and their kids, Lenny and Ben. Lenny and Ben are sort of sitting out in the green, green room for now. So, Nina, thanks for joining us today. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. And Kai as well. Thank you for having us. Now, of course, so many people, as we've mentioned, dream of going off grid. You guys actually did it. We want to find out if it's all it's cracked up to be. And you have been based in Dubai. And back in 2022, forget the van, as we mentioned, you splurged on an 83-seater bus, converting it into a mobile home. So give me a sense, first of all, of who proposed the idea and how long did it take before it was just a seed of an idea to, okay, yeah, we're actually doing this. Uh, so Nina came up with the idea at one point in the middle of Corona and, and all this. So we always planned it for our retirement to go on a big trip and just travel and travel and travel. But then we said, why do we wait so long? Why are we not doing this with the kids? And then, yes, we just started exploring how do we do it? Do we fly around? Do we go on bus and train trips, just connecting each country but then we ended up, no, we want to have our station. We want to have, we don't want to go with a bag every day and be like on the run. Yeah. And then, yeah, we said we'd take our own vehicle, 
checked all the possibilities, small van, a car with a trailer. And then, yeah, at the end, we ended up with a slightly bigger bus. <laughs> <laughs> Just a slightly bigger. I've seen photos of the bus. It is massive. I mean, how did you, and Kai, maybe you can tell us, how did you find the bus to buy in the first place? Because it's like a, a bus used to sort of transport workers, I believe. Yes, it was a labor bus from Al Nabuda. And we just found out that they had a couple of buses redundant and for sale. And we managed to, to get one of them and uh, started then working on it. And ha it took us eight months to convert it fully into a, a ho little home. Yeah. What did that little home look like, Nina? I mean, paint a picture for our listeners about how much can you make a bus a home? Because I've seen photos of vans that have been converted, fewer large buses as you guys chose to do. But yeah, you know, it's amazing what you can fit in there in terms of small kitchen facilities, bathroom facilities, etc. What did it actually look like? Describe it to us. Yeah, so the driver cabin and the co-driver stayed the same. Um, if when you then start walking into the bus, you have a dining area with a table and four seats, two benches opposite of each other. And uh, to the left was a couch, um, reasonable sized couch. Um, everything obviously custom built into it, uh, made as cozy as possible with a lot of upholstery, cushions, pillows, and so on and so on. Mm. Then a small kitchen. Um, everything is obviously in a long corridor because the bus is long and narrow. Uh, and then uh, the kitchen has everything. It had a washing machine, a fridge, uh, cooker. Um, yeah. Um, then you come through the corridor after the kitchen. There was uh, two bunk beds on each side, one a little bit ele elevated, and mm -hmm. underneath were all the wardrobes. From from us, each of us uh, had three drawers, uh, so clothes. Uh, were limited. I <laughs> um, couldn't take my entire wardrobe, unfortunately. Um, and then, uh, yeah, after the kids' beds was on one side a toilet, a proper normal household toilet, and that was really important for us. And uh, on the other side, a shower with a washing basin. And then at the very end, with a big uh, window of this bus, there was the big master bedroom. Uh, which was a 160 uh, mattress. <laughs> oh, that's impressive. I think you've inspired one of our listeners already just by that description because Talib's been in touch to say, which garage mechanic did you use to convert it and furnish it? And also, did you convert it to be a four-wheel drive? Well, we wish we would have had that uh, option. It was not a four-wheel drive, but the conversion, everything uh, my husband did mostly, um, and I helped a little bit with the decorations and stuff. You did everything yourself? Yeah, Yeah, we have a small uh, carpentry that okay. we just started a couple of years ago, and we were lucky enough to could park the bus right next to it, and then we had all the tools inside and, and did this. A little bit of the metal works. We, we got another company doing, but well everything done. else yeah. we did. The whole electrical installations, we have it fully autark. We have a solar system on the roof that I installed with batteries we could store. There's an AC inside, uh, water tanks, sewage tanks, everything. is. And now that there. you've already done this, you must have people coming to you asking for help. Would you do this for other families or other people if they were interested as sort of a business, perhaps? Yes, why not? I mean, we had a couple of overlanders from here that are started trips as well that just come they came we met uh, and then just exchanging ideas and, and tips and tricks and what to do so that was also very helpful for us and, and for them as well just to see how other people do it and, and what you can do right yeah. now nina tell us a little bit more about the journey because you traversed a number of countries mostly in central and south asia uh, what was the route that you took and give us a bit of sense of the timeline how, how many months was this over um like zina our like our goal was to travel Southeast Asia, 
So obviously from here you start shipping the vehicle, shortest distance would be Iran. Mm -hmm. So we started uh, traveling through Iran. Uh, we then um, diverted a little bit from our plans because Pakistan in that year had the big floods. So we decided for the sake of um, road safeties and also for the people to be able to manage their stuff, you know, we didn't want to impose. Yeah. So we, we traveled first to Turkey and spend a month in Turkey. Then we came back traveling um, very quickly through Iran um, towards Pakistan. Um, and uh, then uh, we traveled through Pakistan all the way up north um, where we applied for the Indian visa. And then we traveled uh, from December, we started traveling India and we spent in total three months in India actually and uh, pretty much uh, traveled all the coasts. So we went southbound um, uh, from from uh, entering the country in Amritsar all the way down to Kanyakumari, which is the southernmost point uh, of India, nearly being able to wave to Sri Lanka. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we traveled the east coast um, up to Chennai, where we were invited to the Ashok Leyland factory because they were so happy to welcome us because Haoli, that's the name of our bus, was actually born there. So, um, yeah, so there was a big party for us arranged, which was super, super cute. And, uh, yeah, from there we had to rush a slight bit because our visa was about to expire. And then we entered Nepal in uh, February. And uh, from there, from entering Nepal, we went uh, to Pokhara. Uh, we did with the kids the Annapurna base camp. We walked, uh, hiked up to uh, 4,130 oh, wow. meter, I believe. What an experience. Uh, it took us uh, nine days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and then uh, we visited uh, Kathmandu for a month, uh, exploring the entire history of this beautiful uh, place before we then uh, started the journey back towards India. And then uh, the last big uh, sightseeing moment was obviously Taj Mahal. Um, before we entered back to uh, Pakistan and then uh, back through Iran and then it was already June. <laughs> time to go back to Dubai. Yeah. I'm not sure if we have time for this segment, but my next question was, obviously you were doing this with the kids in tow. They were homeschooled the entire time. Yeah. So I wanted to ask how difficult or easy it was to have kids with you, uh, especially, you know, traveling on land around these countries. I mean, there were advantages of their age. They were at that time 10 and 11. I believe that um, the, um, the, the I believe that um, it was a good age uh, to travel with them. Uh, but at the same time, they already missed their friends a lot. Yeah. So the, the, the Dubai environment, the friend circles and stuff, but because of the age. If they would have been slightly younger, there would have been other advantages that they are kind of easier to disconnect from from the Dubai life. Um, yeah, but the homeschooling was a, a thing. Were they game in terms of, you know, tasting new food, meeting new people, going on long treks and just exploring different countries? I know that some kids love that, but other kids just, you know, want to stay home and eat McDonald's and go on their PlayStation. <laughs> was it an adventure for them? It was definitely an adventure. Um, they had ups and downs like every uh, child has. Um, um, the food uh, sources were obviously sometimes limited, so they were not that pleased about that. Um, but then uh, also they liked the adventures. 
We're continuing this conversation on bus life, about what it's like to travel in a bus over the course of months, your whole family in tow. Does it all get a bit crowded with your family over the course of that period in time? We're going to put those questions to Kai and Nina up next. You can get yours in on 4001. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. The studio in Dubai Eye 103.8 has just gotten incredibly busy because we now have the entire Shakat family in with us. Of course, if you have been tuning in, we've been talking to Nina and Kai about essentially converting a bus and then traveling over the course of months and months throughout mostly South and Central Asia. We're joined now by their kids, Lenny and Ben. Ben, how's it going? I can see you wearing an Annapurna shirt over there. Did you enjoy that experience of climbing to base camp? Um, I did enjoy it. Well, when we went up the mountain, there were some challenges we had to face as um, at some point I got altitude sickness at um, somewhere near the top. So um, it was kind of hard to get to the very last point. Right. But then running back down the mountain felt amazing because like we achieved something almost near to impossible. Yeah, I mean, that is such a cool experience to have. Your friends must have been so jealous that you were going around traveling for an entire year. Lenny, let me ask you, for you, what was the most special moment or the most special experience over the course of all of the journeys that you did? Um, I I don't actually know because I think it might have been the hike because I have, because like, I don't know. I just liked it a lot. And we got to see snow, but we did not build a snowman, which was <laughs> sad. Oh, that just means there's a chance to go back and do it again. Uh, Nina, let me, let me ask you the same question. I mean, so much that you experienced. What for you was the kind of most magical moment that you remember? Um, the most magical moment? I, I think it's very difficult. Every country had its uh, amazing parts. I think the best experience that we had is really meeting people from different cultures mm. and being in close in contact with them living in, in their in their country and experience what they live and the, the hospitality in every country, how welcoming people were and how kind and how curious they were towards us. And um, they, everybody was kind of arguing about where, like to invite us for lunch or coffee or tea. Yeah. And it was it was really amazing. So they didn't think you were the crazy family in the bus. They, they wanted to invite you into their homes, basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah, they're very, very welcoming. There. You know, it's interesting because we've had a message in on the text lines to say, how did you address safety and security concerns in remote places? Did you ever feel like there was any kind of issue from that point of view? No, not really. We, we had, I mean, we left our bus alone on beaches uh, or somewhere in the town. I mean, everyone could have easily gone in there. We had stuff outside. We never felt really threatened or that is, it's the area is really unsafe. Someone will take something. Not really. We had one occasion at the end of the trip where someone threw a rock on, on the bus in our windshield while we were driving on a highway. But, I mean, that happened in one year once, and it was was a very unsafe area. Okay. But the rest was, we really felt, like, more welcome. Then it's like people were, what are you doing here? Right. And 
talk to us about, I think a lot of people dream of doing this sort of thing, but there are probably many things, many different reasons they don't ultimately end up doing it. One of them certainly could be financial stability. So when it comes to your job, Nina, I understand that you had a situation where you took sabbatical from work. So you did have some security when you came back, but that you were actually unpaid, obviously, during that entire time. What did it feel like to know that you weren't going to have income coming in while you were going on this journey? It must have been kind of a mental hurdle to overcome. Yeah, but it was something that we challenged ourselves on purpose. Uh, we wanted to have um, the f we wanted to budget in that year very strictly. We had a budget of uh, $1,500, which included everything, petrol consumption, kits, uh, um, food, um, sightseeing, tickets, uh, everything. So we, we wanted, including ourselves and the kids, we wanted to learn what it means to live on a very strict budget. And uh, yeah, we achieved it. Obviously, it was financially uh, yeah, kind of challenging also to return back, um, you know, get back on the feet and everything. But yeah, we, we used up some chunk of our savings. And uh, yeah, but that was the purpose of the trip. Yeah. And, and I think when it comes to being totally free of the modern conventions of work and life routines, when it comes to school for the kids, when it comes to work routines or whatever it is, we all get used to these certain day to day routines. You know, you were waking up in different places all, all of the time. You were, you know, had different daily routines. Kai, what did it feel like to be free of those conventions? It was very nice, but it took a while to, to realize that. So the first one or two months were really challenging because we had every day, as you said, different place, different challenges that came up. We went from everyone is at work at school, you see each other in the morning and evening and then on the weekends to 24-7 in a little bus <laughs> with these new situations. So there were days where it's like, well, why are we doing this? We should go back. But then it took two, three months and then it was the best time ever. I, I don't want to miss it. Now, Ben, you heard your parents say there that you guys were together 24-7. I love my family. I can't imagine being with them in a bus in closed quarters for that long of a period of time. Was it was it a bit tough? What was the hardest thing about that? Um, the hardest part was probably how um, everybody was arguing almost half the time. <laughs> and... This was because um, everyone was close together always and we weren't used to this. And um, some people um, didn't get along that well. For example, me and my sister, we'd always have to fight. And then, like, if I wanted to do something and my parents didn't, there sometimes would be an argument about this. Yeah, I love the honesty of that. But, of course, that's yeah. how families are, Yeah. right? Um, you know, would you recommend this now that you've done it? You've obviously come back as well. I mean, actually, before we asked, would you recommend it? Tell us about integrating back into that that day-to-day -day convention that we talked about because you're back at work, back in school for the kids. I mean, what has that adjustment back to quote-unquote real life felt like? I feel some, some days are very strange where you're mm -hmm. standing in your garden and you're suddenly wondering, where has that year gone? Um, I can't believe that we are back that many months and that I'm going every day to work and as if nothing ever happened, as if I've never been on that trip. Right. It feels like we, we went we slipped back into the very very normal Dubai routine, uh, not Dubai routine in the in the work routine, uh, and yes, some days I'm also enjoying it that I'm back f for having that routine. Right. I think I'm 
I'm a routine person. Also. You know the alternatives now. You know what it's like not to have that routine. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. we know yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. I, and, and I would love to go again on another trip. Right. And do well, that. well, I mean, how did it all compare to the expectations that you had? Because sometimes you hear of these people who do van life experiences and then it's not quite what they thought it would be. Maybe the expectations were high and it didn't quite live up to those expectations. How was it for you, expectations versus reality of that experience? For me, it was opposite. I mean, I mean for me, uh, the trip uh, lived up to my expectations. And uh, Kai and I were, were very clear we will do it again. Uh, we're not sure if the kids will ever want to do it again, but that's okay. Uh, we will do it when you're in university. And then we built a small uh, four-wheel drive that we can go really into the mountains, into the riverbeds, into the desert, because we were actually in North Pakistan in a desert, and we got stuck with a 13-ton bus in the sand. Oh, I mean, I don't even, how do you get a 13-ton bus out of, I've tried to just get my, my car it, out of the sand, and that was a gargantuan effort that took about three hours. It, I mean, it took, uh, it, took say, it took three hours, yeah, but again, that was the hospitality in that yes, country. Right. The farmers. Locals ca- ca- passed by, they said, we will come. They, they brought some big planks and everything. We yeah. were digging for three hours under the bus, lifted up, put it on the, on the planks, and just drove it meter by meter out back on wow. the track. And I mean, what have you guys done with the bus since you've returned home? Do you still have it? Yes. Okay. It's next to our warehouse parked there. We now have to renew RTA and get it ready for the nice season now. Yeah. Or we will see if, if, we, if we sell it. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. Have to, we have to well, now see if it's worth it. Potentially keep it for the next journey. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Um, well, it sounds like you do recommend that experience. It's been lovely to hear about the realities of, of what you experienced. I mean, to be honest, there's so much more to discuss. So hopefully we'll have you back in soon. But for now, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. We've had questions actually about the legalities of this. Before I let you go, Kyle, put this one to you. When it comes to converting your vehicle to a livable, livable place, it's allowed in the UAE? Yes. All you have to do is uh, get an appointment with the RTA committee. And they will check the bus and give you approval as long as everything is safe. So our bus is fully fully legal, converted from a bus into a caravan. So if you are interested, if you are intrigued, that's the word on that. We've given you all the information about how to do it. I'm sure you can reach out to Kai and Nina and their family as well if you want a little bit more information, if you're thinking of the same. For now, thank you so much to the entire Shakat family, Nina, Thank you Kai, for having us. Lenny and Ben as well. Thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome along to The Agenda this Wednesday afternoon. And on the show earlier, joining us to talk sports was Mohamed Suleiman, producer of The Business Breakfast on Dubai Eye and also sports aficionado. We started with football with Mo. We had a big Carabao Cup fixture last night. Yes, there was. So we had uh, Chelsea taking on Newcastle over at Stamford Bridge. This was the quarterfinals of the Carabao Cup. Really tight game this one. Callum Wilson um, gave Newcastle the lead in the 16th minute. And they thought that they were going to cruise to a victory until this happened very, very late in the match. Can somebody be a hero for Chelsea and send us to penalties? Gusto. Again, it's a good ball. Oh, it's a poor header. Mudrick, 1-1! Mikhail Mudrick in stoppage time! A massive, massive moment for the Ukrainians. And maybe in Chelsea's season as well. Right at the death. Newcastle's sturdy defence finally leaks a goal 
So that very, very late goal for Chelsea meant that it was 1-1 and that means that we needed penalties to decide a winner. Do you like penalties, by the way, Sonal? Is that uh, like your favorite part of football? You know what? I can never watch them. I'm always hiding behind my hands. Yeah, it is, it is nerve-wracking. When it's that point, you're already invested. Yeah. You know, it feels yeah. so arbitrary sometimes. Do you think it's a fair way to decide a deadlock? Uh, how else are you going to do it? I know, that's the thing. I you mean, they, they, they had this thing back in the day where it was something called golden goal. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was ages ago. But then, then you don't have a time limit. And the matches finish super late. kind of goes on late. and Exactly, on, right? and p- players get tired and stuff like that. So yeah. penalties were, decided to, well, were needed to decide a winner in this one. And in the end, it was Chelsea goalkeeper Petrovic who made the winning save. Here's a moment when that big, big moment happened. Petrovic! <laughs> Now, the language of this particular commentary I've chosen um, is Serbian. I think it's Serbian. And the reason I chose it is because Petrovic, the goalkeeper who made the save, is... Serbian, He's I would Serbian. assume. So I, I think this is Serbian. I was trying to find out. It's, it's very difficult to identify a language you know that you've ever heard. <laughs> it is. When it first started, just at the first second of it, I thought it was Australian or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you hear that? Very strong accent. Let's, let's hear it. Right? Is it just me? Was there oh, like a I little, might. Yeah, oh, I yeah, might. that's what it is. There was a little like, sort of half second where I thought that guy's Australian. That's really, really Australian. So I, I believe that was Serbian. But Petrovic, the hero for Chelsea, he made a winning save there um, to send uh, Chelsea to the final for the Carabao Cup. The draw for the semifinals takes place tonight after Liverpool play West Ham. That one takes place at midnight UE time tonight. Okay, let's move on to cricket. We had an IPL auction right here in Dubai. It's exciting stuff. Yeah, a bit of history actually. So uh, the UE has hosted the IPL tournaments on its own, right? Mm-hmm. This was, I think back in uh, 2020, if I'm not mistaken, during COVID. Um, but this time we had the auction here for the first time ever. It's, it's a very dramatic affair. If you've ever heard of, a, of an IPL auction, you have players being auctioned off uh, for ridiculous amounts of money, but a very, very great day. Yeah, go ahead. How does it, how does it work? I mean, because all of the different drafts of different sports feel a bit different, don't they? Yes. So how does this one work? Is it kind of, uh, you know, certain teams have first picks is it similar to like NBA yes so each so so all the players that are up for that are up for auction have a base price yep. so they'll, they'll based on their skill level based on their experience based on where they're from so they have sort of a base price and all the teams in the IPL will have their contingents there on the table all right uh, the auctioneer will say okay going uh, Pat Cummins uh, base price two million dollars whatever and a team will say will will raise their paddle, right? And then uh, if a team wants to, uh, um, to 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 supersede that particular uh, uh, auction, then they will they will raise their paddle as well. So it's a very sort of interesting thing. But in the end, yesterday it was a really really good day for one man. All right, here we go. Mitchell Stark. Australian fast bowler Mitchell Stark has become the most expensive signing in the history of the Indian Premier League. He was bought by Kolkata Knight Riders for, wait for it, 24.75 crore Indian rupees. That is, Sonal Rupani, about $3 million. $3 million. $11 million dirhams. In the IPL. I mean, and I don't, I, because I don't have the context, I don't know how much higher that is in the previous. Massive. The, the, the previous set. record um, was 18.15 crore rupees, which is about one point, which is about $2 million. Yeah. Dollars. So it's so about, about a million, million dollars higher. more. So Mitchell Stark is an Australian fast bowler. He just won the World Cup with Australia a couple of months ago. Uh, he's a great player. Yeah. Very, very. But I, I actually wouldn't have thought that he would have gone for so much. But uh, uh, here he is reacting 
to to becoming the most expensive signing in the history of the IPL. It's been an interesting day. Uh, it's ten o'clock here in, in Sydney, so uh, <laughs> I've, I've sort of ticked off a few chores at home and, and mown the lawn and walked the dogs and, and been in the shops a few times. And uh, the auction started, and I cooked myself dinner and, and ended up sitting down and watching uh, obviously Paddy Cummins go for for a big number and, and a few of the other other guys up for auction and. and um, Getting a little bit jittery waiting for, for Group 4 to come out, but uh, yeah, thoroughly thrilled to, to be joining KKR. That must be surreal. Yeah. Seriously. Having your dinner in your home a million yeah. miles away in Australia and watching yourself getting auctioned off. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> People bidding for you. I know. <laughs> and he said he, he walked his dogs in the morning, he had yeah. he prepared his dinner and turned on the TV and he was watching it. Wow. Uh, but he is, uh, he is $3 million richer, uh, which is a huge, huge amount for any cricketer. That is Mo Suleiman. He is producer of The Business Breakfast, but of course, our sports expert here at Dubai Eye. Tune into the agenda every weekday from 10 a.m.